Yeah, again, it is a delight to be with you and to be back, to be with uh, our dear longtime friends, uh, your pastor and his lovely wife, uh, Valley. I'm going to stand down here if that's okay. Uh, does that mess anything up? No. Too bad. We've got to pray for your pastor. He has a hard, hard job. In the kingdom. Pastors have a hard job. They all, they all don't make it. Let me share with you what I'm talking about. A couple was on the way to the church to get married. On the way there, they were, both, they were in this accident. Both of them were killed. They got to heaven. Peter met them. Peter looked at me and says, Oh, guys, it is so good to see you. We really have been looking forward to having you arrive. Both of them looked at Peter and they said, Peter, please, please, we're devastated. We were so looking forward to married life and to be married. And now this. And Peter, we know you're not supposed to marry up here, but is there any way we could be married? We are so devastated. Peter said, well, you ask a very hard thing, but give me a while. Let me see what I can do. So, you know, this is eternity. Five years goes by and he bumps into him again. He says, hey, guys, how are you doing? He said, Peter, we're still waiting. Please, have you been able to work anything out yet? We so want to be married. He said, well, I'm still working on it. Give me a little bit more time. Well, five years goes by. Finally, you've got a minister there. The minister marries them. They go on. Everything's great. Five years later, Peter bumps into him again. And he looks at him and he says, hey, guys, how are you doing? And how's wedded life? And they look at him and both of them put down their face. They looked at him and said, Peter... We don't know how to say this to you. We know we have no right to, but this, this is just not working out. He said, is there any way, Peter, we can get a divorce up here? Peter looked at him and said, you have got to be kidding me. He said, it took me 10 years to find a minister up here. Now you want me to find a lawyer too? Pray for your pastor. We want him to get there. All right. <laughs> Turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, we have a summation of the Feast of the Lord. We read, beginning at verse 13, Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your winepress. Be joyful in your feast, you and your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place where the Lord will choose. And where was that? Where is that? Jerusalem. Okay. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and all of the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, okay? 
at the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, 50 days later. And about three to four months later, the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. God has a yearly cycle. These are not Israel's feasts, according to the Bible. These are called the feast of the Lord. My feast is what the Lord says. Three times a year when he says to his people, come and do business with me. And he calls it a holy convocation. Holy, what does holy mean? Very simply, it means set apart to God. Okay, So it's something that is set apart specifically for God. Convocation is an appointment time. So this is a holy, set-apart time, an appointment time. God has said, come and do business with me. And during those seven times, which really are three different times, three groupings of three three, uh, general times, they will celebrate seven feasts, Passover in the early spring, March and April, depending on the uh, Jewish calendar, which is based on the lunar uh, cycle, okay, and not on the solar. And then Pentecost around our May, June, depending on when it falls that year, 50 days later. And then tabernacles in the fall, September, October time of the year. And in that time, God said these are to be moed, which is the word for festival or feast, meaning they are to be rehearsal and recital times. Times in which you recite all that God has done in redemption story for His people and be sure and pass it on to the next generation. And to recite all that He is yet going to do in redemption story. Because like all of biblical Judaism, the festivals teach us about Messiah. Leviticus 23, I think, is one of the key chapters for unlocking the entire Bible. And I believe when we get a good working knowledge of the festivals, you'll understand God's blueprint for mankind and earth in the light of all of His purpose of restoration since the fall. And by way of definition of restoration, restoration is the putting things back in their right place and in their right condition. And the fact that they're out of their right place and out of their right condition is the sign for the need for restoration. So this is God's big picture plan and purpose that He's always consumed about. Now... I'm going to turn over. I want to read another passage of Scripture to you out of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 6, we read these words. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us. And I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, like the winter rains, like the spring rains. Okay, are we, are we try it again? All right. So the New International Version says, Let us acknowledge the Lord, let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. 
He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that watered the earth. Now, in the New King James Version, or I know in the King James Version, it said, He will come to us as the rain. And it says, as the latter and the former rains. And it's interesting, it says latter there. Because Israel has two rainy seasons. And all of the festivals surround the agricultural year. Because God, when He brought them out of Egypt, and He had them wander for 40 years with the tabernacle, and they camped all around it in booths or sukkahs, okay, not a little pump tent like we think of, all right, and moved with Him, and His presence was with them every day and every night, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Why? Because God has always longed to dwell in the midst of His people. And so the Lord comes and He dwells in our heart and the Holy Spirit is within us until He can return and abide with us in presence and tabernacle with us. Are you getting the idea of the word tabernacle now? Okay, the Feast of Tabernacle is a commemoration of the 40 years of desert wandering. When God's presence was with him, when his protection was with them, and when his provision was with him. Presence, protection, provision. And it would also be a time which would picture literally a complete fulfillment of Messiah when his presence would not only be in us, but would be literally and physically with us as he would tabernacle in his presence, by his protection, and by his provision. So tabernacles surround the agriculture year because God was providing for them. And all of the harvest has come in now. And there's two rains. There is the latter rain, which I think it's interesting that it mentions it first, but the former rains comes at the first of the year. Well, we've just come to the first of the year. It's the fall. The civil year has started. The religious year has been complete with the seventh month that we're in. And these rains now prepare the ground for the new plantings to provide for the next year. And then right before they start uh, ripening again and the first harvest begins to come, which is the barley harvest, which comes in the spring of the year, which is the latter rain, okay, to prepare the ground to complete its harvest, okay, or to start the harvest. And so it says he will come to us as the latter rain first. And we know Jesus came to us and he presented himself as the sacrifice and the first of all of the harvest as he was waved before the Lord as the first fruits. But then again it says, he shall come to us as the latter rain, Passover time, and the former rain. So I think we're going to see that this has to do uh, with the fact of when he does come and he does abide again and tabernacles with us. That's the whole idea behind tabernacling. Sukkot was a week-long autumn harvest festival. Okay, all the crops were in. 
It occurred in the Hebrew month of Tishri, our September, October, depending on their cycle of the moon for that particular year. It completes the religious cycle. It initiates the civil year. And there were two main elements to the holiday. One, there was the building of booths called Sukkah or Sukkot. And that's what this feast is called, the Feast of Sukkot, Tabernacle. Okay? Uh, and then there were the 70 sacrifices of 70 bulls. Now, each of these provided lessons for us. Historically, Tabernacles, as I've said, commemorates the desert wandering. Uh, going on their way to the, uh, to the promised land. It was a journey of promise, presence, and provision. And f- even though they were wandering, remember, because of disobedience, God was with them in the fire and the cloud and divinely protected and provided for all of their needs. And for the celebration, God commanded them to build tabernacles or booths and to actually live in them or eat in them, is basically what they do now, uh, for a week. Now, they were very flimsy. You were supposed to put kind of uh, straw and stuff on the top branches so you could see through it to the stars, and you could sit there and meditate on God's presence overshadowing you and watching over you the whole week. Now, not only that, but he was being faithful. The harvest was in. He had protected. And Sukkot seems to be the only major biblical holiday, though, with no direct fulfillment or parallel in the New Testament, with the exception of what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay? We know he came at Passover. We know he was the sacrifice. But what about the former reign? Has he come to us as he is coming to us? Because most believe the last three festivals, which are called the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which are the Feast of Trumpets, the uh, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles itself, has to do with his second coming. Okay? Now, and most would say that the Feast of Tabernacle itself, Sukkot, has to do with the thousand-year millennial reign where he will live here on earth in his temple, on the Temple Mount, in Jerusalem, and he will rule and reign as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay? Now, so this feast remains a feast of the future, and it's shrouded in symbolism and in mystery. But it is the only feast according to Zechariah, that it says when the Lord comes back every year, he will expect all the nations who would come together against Israel to come up yearly to the Feast of Tabernacles with all of his people. Okay, And if they don't come, he says that nation will have no rain the next year. So it's a feast of the future. Now, we're going to take this feast now and we're going to look at it somewhat uh, differently. Let me share with you one lesson from, the, from Sukkot. Number one, it's about sojourning, right? It's about heading toward the promised land and the full rest of being in God's presence. And so the whole idea of tabernacling is that we are sojourners, We are strangers and pilgrims, all of us in this land, headed to the fullness of the promised land. Now, as sojourners, 
when you're traveling, if anything else, you realize that you hold on to everything very loosely. And you don't have everything. Everybody is reduced to the same socioeconomic level when you sojourn together. So it takes away status. It takes away everybody and puts them on an equal plane. And you learn that you depend on each other as well as on God. Okay? Now, what about tabernacles? Has there already been somewhat of a fulfillment with tabernacles? I think it's interesting. Let me ask you a question. Why do we celebrate holidays and days? Think about that a minute. How many here knows how the uh, beginnings of Christmas actually began? The celebration of Christmas. Because I want to talk about that in relation to uh, tabernacles. In relation to this, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. And Jesus' birth. Okay? Well, Christmas got started because pagans believed that the winter solstice on December the 21st and 22nd represented the death of the sun, S-U-N, okay? But by December the 25th, the sun's climb in the sky made it obviously that the sun was not dead. So a wild celebration, and I mean wild celebration, Okay, if you go back and do any kind of historical study whatsoever. Of the sun's rebirth was initiated and began to be observed. Now, in order to counteract this pagan festival, the church in Rome proclaimed December the 25th to be the birthday of Jesus. And the thinking was that it seemed logical, a logical time to celebrate the birth of the Son, S-O-N, who called himself the light of the world. And so they called this celebration then Christ Mass, which later eventually was shortened to Christmas. So that by the year 354... 29 years after the council of Nicaea had just declared uh, uh, in 325 Easter as the celebration for Jesus' death, specifically to separate it from its Jewish identity of Passover. So now we have then listed in the Roman Almanac December the 25th as the anniversary of Christ's birth. That's how it came about. Now, believe me and hear my heart, this is not a lamb blast of Christmas or of Easter. This is just historical fact I'm sharing with you, okay? That's not my motive tonight at all. So what should be our motive of why we celebrate someone or something or a particular day? Let me suggest to you that it's not as a counter or to counter something or as a response or even a reaction. 
Let me suggest that maybe as everything else in the kingdom, as an act of obedience because of instructions from God's word himself. Let me ask you, where is Christmas mentioned in the Bible? Christmas is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. There is the story of the account of Jesus' birth, yes, okay? But there is neither an admonition to observe it, nor an example of anyone celebrating it. In fact, Jesus never told anyone to celebrate his birth, did he? What did he instruct us to observe and remember? His death. Okay? He did tell his followers to celebrate his death. When? At the annual celebration of the first religious festival in God's cycle of the year, Pesach. Because it's all about him and his death, burial, and resurrection. Once a year, in grand fashion, around a table, tell the story of my death, burial, and resurrection to free you and deliver you from the slavery of sin. Okay? And then all during the year, as often as you will, with this bread and with this cup, remember my death and resurrection until I come. So then communion and Passover are one and the same. Communion is not to make Passover extinct. Communion then becomes the extension of the Passover table all during the year. Now, I don't believe it's so important that we celebrate the time of the Incarnation as much as I believe we should celebrate the Incarnation itself. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Now, obviously, you want a time to do that, but we should do that all the time. Now, a very easy to document, but not very well known fact, is the date of the birth of Jesus in the scriptures. And this is done by establishing three things. Number one, the date that Gabriel, the angel, tells Zechariah in the temple that he is soon going to have a son, and he's to name him John. And then counting forward approximately nine months for full-term pregnancy, given that Elizabeth became pregnant very shortly after that. Number two the approximate date of Mary's conception. And then number three, the date of Herod's death along with the coming of the wise men. And there's a very interesting outcome. So let's look at these three and see where we come to. All right? In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah in the temple. Now, Zechariah 
was a priest serving his time at this particular time in the temple. Well, what would have been that time? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So he definitely was part of the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi. Now notice that Zechariah was of the priestly division of Abijah. Well, what does that mean? Well, King David, according to 1 Chronicles 24, had divided the priestly families, there was 24 priestly families, into 24 different groupings. We read this in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 10. Each group was called a course or a division. In other words, each household, each family, each priest. Now, and the division was named after that patriarchal family head. Abijah was who Zechariah came under. His uh, patriarchal father was Abijah. Okay? And Abijah, when you look in 1 Chronicles 24, if you want to turn there, Twenty-four and verse ten, you find out that the first lot fell to Jehoiarib, the second to Jedaniah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Zeorim, the fifth to Malchijah. And you come down in verse ten, it says the seventh to Hakoz, the eighth to Abijah. So Zechariah came in the eighth division; would be his time to come and serve at the temple. Now, each group served one week, two times a year. So they served two weeks of the year. One week in the first half of the year, and one week again in the second half of the year, they would serve for a full week at the temple. And the courses began, their service time began, with the religious year. Well, what was the religious year? Where did the religious year start? Passover, right? in March, April time. Plus, every division would serve their week in addition to the week of any festival that fell around in the time that they were serving. Okay? It would be an additional time. And what were the three festival times? Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, right? So the first course would serve the first week The second course would serve the second week. And then all courses, because Passover came on the 14th day of the first month. So it was right after the second week. So everybody served the third week. Okay? Now, therefore, if you count eight weeks plus add two weeks, because within those eight weeks you would come to one Passover, so he had, everybody was serving then, that didn't count as one. And then you would also, before the eighth week came, Pentecost would have come, so everybody's serving there. So actually on the tenth week, 
was the eighth week service time. Now, so he would have been on temple service on the eighth week. And it's at this particular time that Zechariah is serving his course that Gabriel delivers the prophecy of John's birth in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. Now, due to the laws of separation and the issue of the flowing of blood according to a woman's menstrual cycle, you also had to add two additional weeks. So allowing for this and going forward nine months then, from this time on for a full-term pregnancy, the time of John's birth would have been approximately Passover. Pesach. Now remember, this was also the time when every Jew believed around the Passover table for 3,500 years, one place setting is set there with nobody sitting on it. You know why? No. Elijah's place. Because they believe that Messiah would come and they would see him at Passover... And remember what the scripture says, he shall come as the rain, as the latter, which is Passover, rain, and the former. And so they believed that Elijah would come, and at that particular time, one of the children in the particular part of the Passover Seder that always goes to the door to see if Passover is there, I mean if Elijah is there, to come and announce Messiah has come. And do you remember what Jesus said about John? If you can accept it, John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah upon him. And who was it introduced? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sacrifice to be given at Passover. John. Okay? Now, let's look at Mary's conception. Next, the angel leaves Zechariah and Elizabeth. Okay, And he goes to Mary, and he tells her of her coming pregnancy, and he also tells her of Elizabeth's pregnancy, who is now six months pregnant. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 37, we won't take time to read it, but write that down so you can go back and follow him and make sure that I'm accurate in what I'm saying to you. Okay? So this would have been... December. This would have been Kislev. Now understand there are two celebrations today in Kislev. One among the Jewish people and one among God's Gentile people. We celebrate Christmas in Kislev in December the 25th. And it's interesting, Hanukkah which has become really a major holiday for the Jewish people because of Christmas. They have Hanukkah, and it starts on the 25th of Kislev. Now, that doesn't mean it comes every year on the 25th day of December because it fluctuates. This past year, it actually came through the 25th of December. Now, and so the angel Gabriel goes to Mary... And tells her, it is December now. And Mary goes to Elizabeth, who is now six months pregnant, according to the scriptures. 
Three months later, John is born at Passover, the Passover season. Mary would be what? Excuse me? Three months. Mary would be three months if the angel was come to her, and then she goes to, Mary, uh, to Elizabeth, who's six months, and then three months later, John is born. Now, count forward then from March, April, when John is born, and now Mary is three months, six more months, given a full-term pregnancy. And what do you come to? September, October time frame. It's the fall of the year. It's the season of tabernacles. Sukkot, which takes in the three last feasts. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, according to the Jewish people, has many names to it. But the number one name is that it's called the Feast of the Presence of the Lord. Because one, God tabernacled His presence with them all during the 40 years of wandering of which this feast commemorates. And He has promised to come back and tabernacle with Him. And Jesus has promised that He will come and that where He is, we shall be also in His Father's house or many rooms. And we'll abide in His presence. And He will be there with us. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is called by several names. It's called the ultimate festival in God's calendar. It's called the joyous feast. It's called the Feast of Feasts. It's called the Festive Rest, the Ingathering of Jehovah, the Feast of Full Glory, the Rejoicing of the Law, the Festival, the Day of the Great Hosanna, the Feast of Jubilation, the Feast the feast, the feast of the presence of the Lord, the feast of great joy. And it's said by the ancient sages and the rabbis of long ago that whoever did not see the rejoicing at the temple during the days of Sukkot, when 70 bulls were offered, one for every nation of the world, because the Jewish people believe that God comes to uh, receive all of the nations that they never saw rejoicing in all of their life had they not seen the rejoicing at tabernacles. And so Hosea says, He comes to us as the rain, as the latter, okay, which is the spring, and the former, which is the fall. Okay? Now, so the question then arises, was Zechariah given this prophecy about John the first half of the year or the second half of the year when he would be serving his other week? Well, the key to answer that is in Herod's death. Herod was a man hated, hated by the Jews because he claimed to be part Jewish. Okay? Herod was one of the cruelest and most bloodthirsty men who ever lived, and yet he was a master builder. When Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to turn to that, Herod is visited by the wise men, it says, from the east. 
Matthew chapter 2. And let's begin at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, from this passage, here's what I understand or come to know. Okay, or believe. One, that the wise men are Jewish. You say, Lenny, why do you believe that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Now, the passage, while it does not tell us that it was three wise men, okay, it does give a reference where they're from. It says they were from the east, right? Well, in the Bible, wherever it refers to the land of the east, it's always talking about Babylon. Well, why is that? Well, do you remember in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 1, if you want to write that down, and then Judges chapter 6 and verse 3, you'll see it talking about Babylon of the east. But in the first century, the largest Jewish population outside of Israel, was in Babylon. They were descendants of the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 when he took the two southern tribes. Who took the, the ten northern tribes, you remember? Assyria, Sennacherib. Now, though Ezra came back after 70 years, Nehemiah and others returned, most of the Jewish people remained in Babylon. Why? They'd been there 70 years. They had become home. They'd raised their children. They were, a lot of them were too old to be able to make the trek. And so there was still a huge population there. And the fact that these wise men were looking for the Jewish Messiah, who was only expected by the Jewish people, has to be noted. In addition, there was a prophecy relating to Messiah that only the Jewish people, for the most part, were aware of. And it's in Numbers chapter 24. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Because of this prophecy, a star is related to Messiah's coming. Let me give you an example. 100 years after Yeshua, after Jesus, Rabbi Akiva, a great uh, rabbinic sage, of the Jewish people mistakenly proclaimed a military leader, Messiah. Remember, Jesus said many messiahs would come. Israel has proclaimed over 40 since Jesus' time, okay, in their history. But this messiah's title was called Bar Kokhba. It was a tremendous disaster in Israel's history. Bar Kokhba means son of the star. Now, the rabbis 
or the sages, were also known as the Hakamim. In Hebrew, that means the wise men. And Daniel, you remember, in Babylon was referred to by this title. And a related Babylonian word is the word mag, or maj, M-A-G. Also for the word wise men. And then the Greek word magi, or magi, was taken from this Babylonian word mag, which also has this meaning. Now, there's other words that are also attached to the word magi or mag. It can be astrologer, scientist, counselor, scholar. These are all wise men. Okay? So knowing the prophecy of Numbers chapter 24 and relating it correctly to Messiah and having seen this star through their astrology studies, looking for the star, and Messiah's coming. They travel to Jerusalem to do homage. Back now to Herod. Again, he was very cruel. He was very suspicious. He was a total paranoid schizophrenic. And he was hated. He was so paranoid that he killed two of his sons because he suspected them of trying to get the throne and his favorite wife. That's a favorite wife. Matter of fact, Augustus Caesar, having noted that Herod observed Jewish law because he tried to get in with the Jews by all his master building and saying he was Jewish and therefore wouldn't eat pork, Augustus Caesar said, it's better to be a pig in the house of Herod than be one of his sons. You have a better chance of staying alive. So it was no surprise then that Herod sought or would seek the child's life if he knew they had come to worship the king of the Jews. He wasn't about to give up his throne. Okay? Nor it would be no surprise that all of Jerusalem would be troubled if Herod knew the king of the Jews had been born. Okay? Now... Traditional teaching is that the wise men appeared a year to 18 months after the birth of Jesus. And this is based upon Herod's killing of the male children under two years, according to the date that the wise men star appeared in Matthew chapter 2, 7 and 8, and this verse 16. We won't take time to go through that. You can write that down and then look it up. But contrary to this traditional teaching, was the custom in ancient Israel to count the years of one's age from the date of conception. In other words, when a child would be born, he would actually be one year old. They would look at life as starting from the time of conception. Isn't that interesting? Okay? Therefore, Herod actually killed the children one year old and under. In fact, the wise men then would have arrived in Jerusalem just prior to or at the time of Yeshua's birth itself. Now, I think it's important and we must realize 
that up to this time, no one in Jerusalem, including the priest, had heard Yeshua had been born. Why do we know this? Again, because of the nature of Herod, having spies all over. And if anyone had heard of it, he would have known about it. Because of his paranoia and his practice to have these spies out, it would have been impossible that he would not have heard about it at all. Now, Luke's account of the birth retells the experience of the shepherds who, after seeing the baby, went out and broadcast what they saw to the entire region in Luke 2 and verse 17. Brothers and sisters, Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. You can almost throw a stone there. It's so close. Which makes it very improbable that Herod and the temple priest would be ignorant then of his birth. And further proof then is seen that in that 40 days after his birth, Mary carries Jesus, remember, to the temple for her purification and for his dedication. And it's there then that Simeon and Anna, remember, prophesy over the child in Luke chapter 2. So, the wise men couldn't have arrived after these events because the uproar would have already gone through, because the shepherds noised it abroad, remember? So we can assume that they must have spoken to Herod about the time of his birth, and Herod said, go, get me a report. And then, traveling to Bethlehem, they found the child and his parents in a house, is what Matthew says, whereas Luke accounts, says the shepherds found him in a stable. Now that's not a contradiction or even a discrepancy. It was very probable that after the birth they moved him to a house. And here's a clue to the time of his birth. Luke says the shepherd found him in a stable. Well in Hebrew the word for stable is Sukkah. Okay? Genesis 33, verse 17. Sukkot, the name of the festival that we're talking about tonight, is the plural form of this word sukkah. And it's significant that they had to seek cover in a sukkah due to the fact that there was no room in the inn which only would have taken place during three times a year when everyone came and Jerusalem totally overflowed into all of the surrounding villages, Bethlehem being five miles away. Now, in addition, Joseph and Mary bring the child into Jerusalem 40 days later, you remember, after their birth, after his birth, indicates that Herod must have died within this same 40-day period of time because they couldn't have brought him in as long as Herod was alive. 
So the chronology of 40 days is imperative in correctly finding out his birth date. Let me give you a probable and very possible scenario chronologically of what happened. Joseph and Mary come to Jerusalem for the festival of Sukkot. Tabernacles. It's September, October time frame. Planning to stay in their own town in Bethlehem in order to register now for the census because you could come in and you have kind of like a three months window when you could register for the census in your own town. And they took the opportunity to come and register because they came to the pilgrim festival anyway. Now, unable to find room in the inn, they're given shelter in a stable which happens to be a sukkah because they're all over the place for the festival. During the night, the wise men arrive in Jerusalem and they speak to Herod. Meanwhile, Miriam, Mary, gives birth. And a heavenly host appear to the shepherds and announce the birth and Messiah and said, go noise it abroad. And the shepherds go to the stable, the sukkah, and they pay homage while the wise men now are making their way to Bethlehem following again the star. Now the shepherds at that time also, while it's in process, leave to noise it abroad and Mary is moved to a house, very possibly one of the shepherds. This is Messiah. The angel just told us he can't stay in a sukkah. My house. And so the wise men then arrive and during the night are warned by God concerning Herod. So they tell Joseph and Mary, who flee with the child to Egypt. While at the same time, the wise men leave by another route. And Joseph and Mary stay in Egypt until Herod dies. Now, on returning then to Judea, to Israel, they dedicate Jesus according to the scriptures in Jerusalem, and they receive then the prophecy of Simeon and Anna. And they go to Galilee then where they lived in the town of Nazareth. Now, let me wrap this up. Apparently, as long as Herod was alive, Joseph and Mary and Jesus could not appear in the temple. It had already been noised. So if the approximate date then of Herod's death is determined, this would establish then the season of Jesus' birth. And the key is in the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in the first, uh, uh, in the first century. He documented in detail Herod's death. Josephus relates that Herod became very ill immediately following an act of impiety against the priesthood, at which time an eclipse of the moon occurred. This is documented by Josephus. This eclipse 
the only one mentioned by Josephus in all of his historical writings, happened on March the 13th in the year of the Julian period of 4710 in the fourth year of B.C. Now, Herod's illness lasted several months and was very painful and very distressful. He was pretty much just kind of eaten away. I don't know if it was a type of cancer or what. But according to Josephus' calculation, Herod's death occurred about or in early fall of the fourth year B.C. Therefore, with the knowledge that Herod had died in early autumn, the same time of the year as Sukkot, and that his death was within those 40 days of Yeshua's birth, it's reasonable then to say that Yeshua was born at this particular time. He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain. Now, let me add something else. God is a God who doesn't miss one jot or tittle of anything. He's a God of order. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He knows on down the road. He is omniscient. Israel has just come through 165 years earlier a, uh, defeating the Syrians by the Maccabees, Antiochus, who defiles the temple, remember, with a pig and tries to destroy all the Jews. And now they celebrate this great miracle of Hanukkah, the small defeating the many, and the miracle of the oil that lasted for eight days, which they believe was a belated Feast of Tabernacles celebration. Now, so every year, Hanukkah, on the 25th of Kislev, when they came in and defeated the Syrians... It's being celebrated in December. And it fluctuates which part of December? Sometimes the beginning, sometimes middle, sometimes end. God also knowing that His non-Jewish people in all the nations of the world at some point in time would establish His birth as December the 25th. My mind goes and says, I wonder, wouldn't it be just like God? Since we know in order for Jesus to have been born during the Feast of Tabernacles in September, October, he would have been conceived then, or would have had to have been conceived in Kislev, December. And according to the ancient Jewish people who believe life started at conception, when they were conceived, wouldn't it have been just like God that that year Hanukkah would fall in the latter part of December and would stretch over December the 25th? And wouldn't it be just like God that Jesus, Joseph and Mary conceive, Mary conceived, 
from Joseph. Well, not from Joseph, okay? Okay. From Abba in that same time frame. And then would be born in the fall of the year. So it's a study that you can look at, that you can follow the scriptural accuracy of it. And now we're looking at the fall festivals. We're in the middle of tabernacles right now. Chaksamea, happy holiday. And it's the feast in which they look for Messiah's presence to dwell with them for a millennium. It's time for his coming. When? I don't know. But I believe, be honest with you, just as every feast of his first coming had to do with his first coming, I don't know why it would be any different for his second coming. If that is God's cycle, and he is telling redemption story, it's very obvious that he is. So I'm not trying to say Jesus is coming this day or this hour. But I'm saying this follows the feast model of God's teaching of redemption story and the fulfillment of which Messiah will have in each feast in order as they come down. And that's why I say to Christians... We need to get a good working understanding of the festivals. It's not that we have to celebrate them. To be honest with you, it's that we get to. It's by grace. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. But they're a beautiful picture book of God's redemption story and of our remembering and reciting it. And passing it on. But to me, it's a total personal thing. I don't tell any pastor, you need to have your church celebrating the festivals. Because I don't think that's really something that he should be doing or needs to do. That's a personal thing in your own home. They were all family holidays. Yeah, there were uh, times of uh, uh, celebrations, but the personal side of it was all in the holidays. I don't tell you, please don't stop celebrating Easter. That ship's been too long in the water. <laughs> but put Easter back in its context. Because Easter is Passover. Passover is not Easter, but Easter is Passover. So put it there. Yeah. Pentecost. For the most part, the church has acknowledged Passover, though it's all about Easter, no Passover. And a very small part of the church has acknowledged Pentecost. But hardly none of the church has even known anything about tabernacles. And to me, that's strange in the light of some of the events of which tabernacles and things that took place at tabernacles. And let me conclude with this right here. During tabernacles, the Ark of the Covenant, 
that physical representation of God's presence and unique relationship to Israel, do you remember, was captured by the Philistines. David goes, he fetches it, and he triumphantly brings it back to Jerusalem where he builds a dwelling place, a tabernacle in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. It happened on Sukkot, tabernacles. King David, you remember, wasn't permitted to build a temple because his hands were stained with blood. Solomon, his son, builds it. He goes in to dedicate it, and the glory cloud fills the temple. It's on Sukkot. God's presence came into his temple. The destruction of the temple by Babylon. Cyrus, 70 years later, sends back them with funds to rebuild. They rest or store it. They clean it up. The Torah is found, it's read, and the Feast of Tabernacle Ordinance is seen and realized. They rejoice, they dedicate it, it's Sukkot. And finally, the greatest of all historical events, He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain. So I think we'll see Him again at another former rain. And I think he came at the ladder and laid his life down. And I think he even came at the former and the light was birthed among us. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. You are a covenant-keeping God. Lord, you are a God of promise. You're a God who only wants to walk in the cool of the day with your children and to allow us always to be in your presence. Lord, you are an Abba, our Father, our Daddy who only wants to provide and protect us. Thank you for your word. Thank you you have not hidden your plans and your purpose from us. Thank you, Lord, that you will complete all that you have promised us you will do. In the name of your Son, amen.